Lord God, Heavenly Father, let this be acceptable in your sight this morning. Let your words work in and through us. Let us be filled by the awe, the majesty that you are and the gift you have given us in Christ Jesus. Fill us this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in some ways, the message of this whole series that we've been doing is really quite simple. We are to have a living faith in Christ Jesus, one that bears fruit. It's a pretty simple message, isn't it? And it is the call that we have. And the call that we have in Christ Jesus can actually be very simple. For he said to his followers, follow me. It's a very simple call overall. And there's a lot of people who have said, I've heard the call of Jesus, I'm saved, and that's all. But is that all there really is? Is being saved, that miracle of God, is that it? And I would say if that's it, then the writers of the New Testament, and specifically Luke and Paul and Peter and John, didn't have to write what they wrote because it would have all been covered sufficiently enough in the gospel accounts. Yet as simple as the call, follow me is, as simple as the call of having a living faith in Christ Jesus is, there's a depth to it, an endless depth that is profound. And so Peter, right, this burly guy who's now been transformed by the gospel, by Christ Jesus, is writing a letter to the Christians who are dispersed, the, the, the exiles, the elect exiles. And he's writing them. He says, listen, you, you have been born to a living hope. He says, listen up, you are living stones. You are a royal priesthood, and you're called to be holy like him who called you is holy. And because you're born to a living hope, because you are holy, be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. This is what he is writing because there's a depth, a profoundness to the call of follow me, of to have a living faith in Christ Jesus. And now in the section that we have this morning, he's saying, now that you have had now that call, don't squander it on the things of the world. Live in the will of God. Be stewards of God's grace. And that's really the message this morning, that we are to live in the will of God and be stewards of the grace that he gave you. That's the message. Live in the will of God, not in the will of the world. Be stewards of God's gift. So let's, let's explore this simple and yet profound message. We're going to start first with living in the will of God, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human, for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, Peter keeps coming back to Jesus Christ and his cross. It is central 
to who he is and the message he's writing. Listen, it's just not a long letter. It doesn't really take that long to read. But in each of the chapters we have, he keeps coming back again and again to Christ Jesus and his cross. I've given four references there. If you're using sermon notes, they're on the sermon notes for you. Let me just read um, 119 and then 221 and then 24. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So referring to the cross there. And then chapter 2, 21 and 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So you can see Peter keeps going back and back and back to the cross. Why? I mean, he's already said it once or twice. Why does he keep repeating it in all of these chapters in the letter? And the answer is actually really simple, because we forget. We forget again and again about Jesus and his cross. You see, it's really easy. It's so easy to make Christianity into a set of rules. Okay, I've been saved. Now I just got to be a good Christian and follow the rules. And when that becomes your identity as a Christian, man, that's a hard road. You get disillusioned, you get burnt out without the understanding of Christ and his cross. And you think, well, Jesus was a really good example, and I just need to follow his example. Jesus was a perfect example. But is that all that he came for? Is that all that he came for to simply be an example for you how to live? Do you recall last week I said that we need to be able to give a reason for the hope that, it was, that is within us? That was from the lesson last week. And the real simple question to be able to ask is why are you a Christian? I don't know if you worked on that at all, but that was the question. Why are you a Christian? And now there's another question that actually gets associated with that is, why did Jesus come? See, you need to be able to answer that question as well, because that question is central to why you are a Christian. Why did Jesus come? Just to be an example? No. He came because of one word. It's a small three-letter word. Can you guess what that word is? Sin. That's right. He came because of sin. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, if your response about the hope that was within you doesn't include something about sin and Jesus dying for your sin, I would ask you, well, what hope do you have? But he came because of sin. Now, in the Old Testament, the word for sin can be translated of missing the mark. And there are a lot of people who say, well, it's just missing the mark. It's not so bad. How bad is sin? Really bad, right? Really bad. How bad is your sin? Really bad. We want to discount how bad sin is, but that is exactly why Christ came. 
why He bore our sins on the cross. And through Him, His death and then His resurrection, faith in Him, you're redeemed, right? And, you know, we hear that a lot. We hear, okay, yeah, I'm redeemed, I'm saved, good, good to go. But no, you, you have to understand, in that miracle, in that moment of salvation, when you come to us, when God actually gives you that saving faith in Christ Jesus, you're not just an improved you, you go from an old you to a brand new you. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul can write this. He says, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. I mean, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Think about this. So if somebody says, okay, so you're a Christian. What difference does having faith make in your day-to-day life? Now, there's another question. It's kind of a hard question. What difference does being a Christian make in your day-to-day life? And most people will say something like, well, you know, I try to be nice to people and live by the good rule, the golden rule, right? Something like that. And, and, and it's, by the way, that's, that's good. I'm not discounting that. You should be nice to people. You should live by the golden rule. But they would say, well, is that all to your faith? Is that all how it affects your day-to-day life? And pressed a little further, people would probably hem and haw a bit and then say, well, you know, I, I do go to church and I, I try to help out and, you know, I volunteer in the community. Now, take a look at that answer and take a look at what Paul said. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you imagine if somebody asks you, what difference does your faith make in your day-to-day life? And you say, I've been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. They'd be like, They wouldn't know what to do with you. They would say, are you one of those zealots? And yes, you could say, I am passionate for Christ. He is my all in all. It's the degree of difference. That's what's being talked about here. So now with all of that in mind, listen to what Peter writes. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God, to live for the will of God. He lays it out there, doesn't he? What does it mean to live in the will of God? It is none other than to live in the will of Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. But you might be saying, well, how can I know if I'm living in the will of Christ Jesus? The answer is right before you, it is Scripture. It is God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And thus, all Scripture is breathed out by Jesus. 
And so you have to abide in his word. You have to soak it in so it penetrates your mind, so it penetrates your heart, so it penetrates your soul, so you are filled with it fully. And you know when you are filled with something fully, it changes the course of your life, and you start to live in the will of God, not in the will of the world. So let's talk about this. Not in the will of the world. Okay, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So we're going to start with this talking first and foremost about peer pressure. Okay, peer pressure. There was a study done, an experiment that was done, and it was repeated many times so that they knew the results were consistent. And what it was, on one piece of paper, they had one line. You can see that on the screen. And another piece of paper, they had three lines, A, B, and C. And they would ask a group of people, what of A, B, and C most closely matches the original drawing. Now, the answer is C. It's the same length, same height, same shape as the original drawing. But here's the twist. Say they would bring in a group of people and everybody would be in on this except for one person. And they would tell everybody who was in on this, I want you to answer A. Now, A is the wrong answer, but everybody answered A. 66% of the time, or two-thirds of the time, the person who was not in on it felt such pressure that they answered A, even though they knew it was wrong. This experiment has been done with uh, with youth, with teenagers, with adults, it is consistent throughout. Peer pressure makes you go to the wrong thing. What you know is wrong. And you can see how this plays out in our culture right now. Our culture is immersed with alcohol, with drugs, with sex, with sexuality, all of that. And it starts at a really young age at a really young age. And kids are pressured to go with what other kids are saying or even what other adults are doing. Because they say, well, look, everybody else is doing it. It can't hurt, right? And what you find is this, that under peer pressure, sin gets normalized. I encourage you strongly to take a look at the, what's before the Senate, the Equality Act. Read it. Read it through. What is getting normalized? Is it biblical? Will they shame and punish you if you don't agree with it? This is what gets normalized. So I'm encouraging, really, to read it. 
But I don't want to go off into that area right now because it'd be re it's actually, it'd be too easy to do that. I'm going to stick more directly with the text because there is something that the text points to that people don't talk about. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking, parties, and lawless idolatry. And to that, I want to add pornography. Pornography is an epidemic in our country and around the world. And it starts young. And whenever a young person and adult is exposed to pornography over a period of time, it will literally rewire your brain. It rewires your brain and your body. It becomes an addiction, and it destroys any idea of actual intimacy between a man and a woman. It is pernicious. It is evil. As one person says, it's available, accessible, affordable, anonymous, appealing, aggressive, and addictive. And it's not just the youth. And it starts young. Oh, it starts young. It's not just the youth, and it's not just men. Actually, men and women view pornography on a regular basis at about the same percentage. And I was told just recently by another pastor that the fastest growing demographic in pornography is women. And one study, one reputable uh, site that I went to said this, pornography is now the root cause of 56% of divorces. It is literally destroying families. And you, I'm not even going to put up the statistics this morning. Churches are not exempt from this. It is astounding how many men and women in a church setting view pornography on a regular basis. What makes the news are the ministers and pastors and priests who succumb to this, but it's throughout all the churches. Thankfully, there are more and more ministries that are dealing with this epidemic. If you know of a person who needs some help, uh, talk to me, email me. I will give you a resource because it's that bad. So let me ask you this. How bad is pornography? Really bad. It's destructive. How bad is living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, and so on? really bad. It's utter depravity. You see, what we have to understand is that all sin is depravity and deserves the wrath of God. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, though that, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All sin deserves God's wrath. All sin is depravity. But this is exactly why the gospel was preached. It was preached to people who are no longer living. It is preached now, and we must never cease preaching Jesus Christ and his gospel.
and see as living stones, as people who are called to be holy and even suffer for persecution's sake, you and I as sojourners, as travelers along the way, are called to a higher conduct. We are to live not in the will of the world, but to live in the will of God. That is our calling. That is our calling. I think a long time ago, I might have read uh, part of this letter. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. It was written to a high-ranking pagan somewhere in the late 200 A.D., And in that letter, he describes that uh, Christians who are living in various cities, much like what Peter is writing to, to whom Peter is writing, they're living in various cities, but their citizenship is very different. And he actually says it is both wonderful and admittedly strange. So this is part of the letter. They live in countries of their own, but simply as sojourners. They share the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners. They marry like the rest of the world. They breed children, but they do not discard their children as some do. They they offer a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they live not after the flesh. They spend their existence upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and in their own lives, they surpass the laws. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are put to death and they gain new life. They are poor and make many rich. They lack everything, and in everything they abound. They are dishonored, and their dishonor becomes their glory. They are abused, and they bless. They are insulted and repay with honor. They do good and are punished as evildoers, and in their punishment they rejoice as gaining new life therein. See, the early Christians knew what that call was to follow Jesus, to live a life that is alive in him, to not live in the will of the world, but in the will of God. That is our calling. And we do that all by the grace of God. And we are to live then being stewards of the grace that he has given us. Verse 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here, Peter again comes back to love. I mean, he's mentioned that many times throughout the letter. Love. But the love he talks about here isn't just the feeling of love, of liking, strong like. It is agape love. It is the self-sacrificial love that we are to have for one another. And while this translation says uh, earnestly, it could say deeply or fervently. So when you have a self-sacrificial love for one another, a deep, fervent love for one another, even when there is a sin against one another, because we do that, right? We do that against one another you're still standing on the same ground of Christ Jesus and his love. And because of that, you work through the sin and there's forgiveness and reconciliation. This is the love that he says we are to have with one another. And that's how it covers a multitude of sins. 
Now, the, the verse, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, almost looks like a throwaway. It's like, well, what was that doing in there? But actually, hospitality in the Greek means love for strangers. So it's an application of what he's talking about, because during that time, they didn't have all the hotels, motels, and so forth. So you would actually stay at somebody's house. So you were to even love the stranger, because we are all sojourners in this world, and we are to extend that love to everyone. So as you're going through this world, living in the will of God, loving in one another, you are to use the gifts of God that he has given you. It says this, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, we've covered spiritual gifts at different times in different places. It's not my intent to go back into that. If you want information or if you want to review uh, some of the messages that were given, let me know, and I'll, uh, I'll give those to you. The problem is when we talk about spiritual gifts, people get all kind of bothered. I want to say freaked out, but that's an old term, isn't it? Because they think of the miraculous gifts of healing or of somehow speaking in tongues or prophecy, something like that. But when you take a look at the gifts that God gives people, they're often kind of more mundane kind of everyday things that we don't even think about as being gifts anymore. It's just what we do. So I want you to take a look at this for a moment, because a lot of people will say, well, I don't have any gifts. Well, let's take a look what the text says. It says, as each has received a gift, as each has received a gift. It does not say, as some of you have received the gift and others you, well, too bad. Nor does it say, if you maybe have received a gift, it says, as each of you has received a gift. If you are born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus, you have been given a gift of the Holy Spirit, period. And what are we to do with that gift? It's actually really simple again. God loves you in Christ Jesus. Love one another by using the gifts to serve one another. There's no more mystery in it than that. But the thing is, you are to use your gifts in service of one another. Because this, ultimately, love manifests itself in action. Love doesn't just sit there. Love love moves you to take certain action. I'm going to give you uh, actually three examples of how this has played out recently. So, you know, Heidi and I were sick with COVID. And we had so many people who said, I'll go to the grocery store for you. I will buy this. I will run errands. (laughs) By the way, in the middle of this, a water valve broke in the garage. I couldn't go to the store because I was in quarantine. So somebody came over and was able to go to the hardware store to get the $12 part versus me calling a plumber, which would have been hundreds of dollars. But people would say, well, I was just helping out, right? No, no, no. That is a spiritual gift. It is an act of mercy. 
That's a spiritual gift right there. People discount that all the time. Another, people say, well, I, I, I couldn't help you out, but I did pray for you. You have no idea how much Heidi and I coveted your prayers. I know we're not supposed to covet, but I think coveting prayers is okay. That's a gift. Praying for one another really is a gift of the Spirit. It's a gift that comes from faith. So those are two from when Heidi and I were sick. But there was another one. And it was earlier, and it dealt with Christmas. When we did the setup and the takedown for Christmas, there were a ton of people here. I mean, it was great. And you could see that people were just engaged in it. And people would often say, well, I'm just helping out, right? That's how we discount spiritual gifts. But here's what I saw. I saw people who were alive in the spirit, who had the joy of Christ Jesus, and they were expressing that joy by decorating the church, by helping out, as it were. To me, I saw much more than people just volunteering. And all of this, all of that has been done because of the love of Christ Jesus for the glory of God. That's what Peter is writing about here. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. It's a pretty simple message, right? Having a living faith, living in the will of God, and then being stewards of the gift. That's the love in action. You see, service is just a simply a natural outcome of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And service is what, how we bear fruit. Pretty simple but a profound message, I believe. So for you to hear the word and apply the word to grow in Christ Jesus, what would it mean for you to live for the rest of the time for the will of God? From this day forward, I've been crucified in Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What would it be for you to make that declaration this very day? How will you guard yourself from the will of the world and its depravity. And finally, in what ways can you use your gifts in service of loving others? Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your love, and thank you for your grace and the gifts you have bestowed upon us. Shape us evermore into Christ Jesus, the love of Christ Jesus filling our hearts. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.